We've actually been together in the Gospels for about eight months, I think, uh, traveling through the ministry of Jesus. And, and I don't know about you, but I never tire of the beauty of Jesus, of just learning about him every single week. It's just been so incredible. Usually I get about a week to prepare for a sermon, uh, but I've been not preaching for the last three weeks, and so I got a lot of material. I could keep you here for several hours, um, but, I'm, but I'm not going to do that. Instead, what we're going to do is break up this sermon into two pieces. So uh, you're going to get the first portion of the lesson this week, um, and then you'll get the second portion uh, next week. We're going to be in Mark chapter 5, so if you want to go ahead and uh, turn your, your Bibles on there and, and kind of jump to that area, uh, that would be great. That's where we're going to be, starting in verse 21 today. Uh, this account that we're going to read is, uh, is found in three of the Gospels. It's found in Matthew chapter 9, it's found in Luke chapter 8, and it's found right here in, in Mark chapter 5. Uh, there are two miracles in this story, uh, and they're interestingly arranged. If you're familiar with the Gospel of Mark, you know that Mark will take two stories sometimes and squash them together, or two concepts and squash them together. I call it a Mark sandwich, and that's what's happening here. Uh, we have a story within a story. We have a miracle within a miracle. And usually I would read the full text on a Sunday morning and then we would go back and kind of deal with it individually. But instead, I'd rather have the story kind of unfold itself today. So we're going to take this text verse by verse. And as I mentioned, next Sunday we'll, we'll finish it. But before we kind of wade into the depths of the waters that is this part of Mark, Mark chapter 5, verse 21 and on, I'd like to share something that I, I, um, I'd like to explain something just about the general disposition of scripture and how I believe it actually, uh, this scripture, this passage that we're going to read answers a pretty vital question uh, that, that is asked as early as Genesis chapter 1. I, I believe um, that people come to conviction of their spiritual needs when they discover the realities of evil. Another way to say this is that the reality of spiritual things are often seen most clearly by those who have discovered the horrors of the world we live in. There's a saying that says there are no atheists on a plane that's going down. I, I believe that's probably true. You know, or when you get a diagnosis that looks like your, your life will, will soon be coming to an end, I, th I think at that moment we get in touch with a more spiritual side of our lives. Or when we hear stories or dramatic stories or traumatic stories about children or, 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 or genocide in countries around the world or we hear stories about war, we start to question maybe there has to be something else than the promises that humanity will bring about a solution to their own problem that they've caused. And we start to think, well, maybe there has to be something greater, a faith greater, a, a, a divinity greater than what we experience in life. And I think that Anyone who starts to wrestle with the dangers and the, and the traumas of life in general begin to wonder if there is something greater out there than what humanity promises. And really anybody who understands the Christian faith understands that the biblical narrative arc is one of acknowledging the horrors of evil, the system of evil, the system we call sin, and then trying to discover if there is any way out. The Bible talks about the sin entering the world like a fall. It's kind of the, I like that imagery because it's like a tumbling into the depths of chaos. It's kind of like, you know, that guy from 300 that's kicked into the thing? It's like that falling. 
It's a traumatic moment when Adam and Eve fall into sin. Because in that moment, man in total falls along with them. Sin being this kind of like icky, tacky, sticky, gooey thing. Evil, and it it clings to every surface, and it stains every soul. I, I, I can equate it to like the worst of fine glitter. Once it starts touching, and I have a a little girl at home, so I know exactly what I'm talking about. So it's like it cannot come off. And everything you touch, it becomes kind of an impossible thing to remove, this trace of evil. And really, in many ways, the Bible is written to people who are wrestling with evil, either by their own experience or by observation. Sin, which is, again, synonymous for the word evil in the Bible, releases a deadly, pervasive force into the world that infects and affects every human being. And we can go as far as as to say that it manipulates, it controls, it it, to to the degree that the Bible would say later on that men are slaves to sin. Evil is everywhere. Evil corrupts every faculty of mankind, every thought, every word, every act. And it goes even further. It, it, it kind of the, we see the Bible uh, connects sin not to just the external, but it also corrupts our moral bodies. It's sin that careens men into sickness. When the fall happens, God pronounces that now death will be the sort or will be the destiny of every single man. Sin is the cause of, of psychological sorrow and, uh, and physical suffering, and then ultimately death. The Bible is clear about this, that sin is everywhere and it needs to be stopped. And so from the very beginning, from, from uh, again, chapter 3 of the Bible, there is a question that is asked, which is this. Is there any escape for the evil that we experience? Is there any escape Is there any hope for deliverance from evil in this world or in the next? Is is this horrendous, everlasting consequences, will there ever be a solution to it? And the Bible, from the moment sin enters the world, begins to pronounce a solution. God says, hey, there's going to be someone coming. He tells this story, he tells this this answer through story or through imagery. He says, there's going to be someone coming who's going to vanquish sin and vanquish evil, someone who will display the ability to overcome evil and even its consequences. And the Bible is pointing to someone who will be a deliverer, a rescuer, a savior. And what happens is that when we get to the beginning of the Gospels, like in Mark chapter 1, we hear about Jesus, the good news about Jesus, the Son of God. You might wonder, well, why, why is it called good news? Well, it's because Jesus, the Son of God, is going to remove the trauma that sin has introduced. He's going to be the one that saves people from the evils that come by way of sin. And so all of the biblical authors, especially the the people who write the Gospels, are kind of pointing us to one great truth, and, and it's this. He says, these words are written that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, that you might believe that Jesus is the one he said he was, who can deal with the problem of evil, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life. Notice the word life there, because what's sin produce? Death. Jesus produces life. And so we see that his ministry is meticulously described for us 
by men carried along by the Holy Spirit to give us evidences and proofs concerning the fact that Jesus is able to fix the problems of evil. That's why it's good news. The gospel is what's needed for a world that's in a perpetual cycle of evil. So, when we come to the gospels, we're supposed to read these words kind of at the edge of our seat with a sense of curiosity, wondering, is Jesus the one who can save the world? Is he really the one? And of course, if you're a Christian, you're like, of course he is. But I want, you to, I want to take you to the moment where you're just opening the scriptures for the first time. And you're going, well, does he have the ability to do this? And what we find over and over again is that Jesus demonstrates his power to overcome evil. And you wonder, well, well how would he do that? I mean, there's lots of ways you could show your ability to overcome evil, right? Jesus could have overthrown oppressive governments. He could have done that. He could have done the whole Robin Hood thing, stolen from the rich and given to the poor. He could have started a war and, and brought the kingdom of God everywhere like the Holy Roman Empire did. But, but instead what we see is, is this, and this is what we're going to hone in on today. Jesus displays his power through expressions of mercy. Jesus chose to use his authority over evil or to show his authority, display his authority over evil by alleviating the suffering it it caused in humanity. That gives a whole new thought process to the idea that God so loved the world that he sent his son. Man was suffering, and so God loved us and gave us Jesus to fix our temporal suffering. So in the Gospels, we see whether it's hunger or fear or disabilities or deadly diseases, his power is always accompanied by showing someone mercy. And that's what we're going to see today. And I hope that you fall in love with Jesus all over again as we unpack this story. It is so, so, so beautiful. Amen. That's an intro. That's how we're going to look at this story, right? So, so let me just give you a few kind of uh, hooks to hang your thoughts on today. Uh, today's a narrative. It's a beautiful narrative. Uh, I, I expect, it, if you don't know it, you will, you will never forget it after you hear it. It's incredible. Um, but, but we have to fix our attention somehow. And so here, here's what I want to do. I want to show you four characteristics that I don't expect someone who has the authority to solve the problem of evil would show. Fair? So these are four characteristics that you wouldn't expect from a really powerful person. That's what we're going to look at. Amen? All right, cool. Four things. First thing, I want to talk about Jesus' accessibility. Jesus spent his entire ministry in the public. His entire ministry was spent in the streets, in the highways and in the byways, in the hillsides, in the fields, in the synagogues, and in homes. There are occasional times where Jesus takes a respite away from the crowds, but he always comes back to them. Because, the Bible tells us, it is to them he has come. Jesus does not isolate himself. Think about the people on the biggest mission in society, politicians, leaders of industry, NGO leaders, Those people are secluded in five-star hotels. Jesus is not like them. Not very many people would be as accessible. I like to use kind of the human terminology. Everyone had Jesus' phone number. Everyone had it. 
And look what it says, because really, he came for the people. So this is the beginning of the the verse, verse 21. This is what it says. When Jesus had again crossed over uh, by boat, remember last week he was on the other side with the demoniac. Joe taught us about that last week. He was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He has now crossed over that six-mile journey, and he gets to the other side of the lake. That's Capernaum. That's where he's been for the longest part of his ministry. And a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Jesus is a celebrity. He's a celebrity. Everyone knows that he can alleviate every human suffering, and so everyone is waiting for him. Only one person has the power to do this, and so Jesus is there. You can imagine that everybody uh, in this society, they don't have a, a place to go to for medical care. There's no hospital. And if you go to a hospital, it's kind of like a, like a croc hospital, you know? And so Jesus, I mean, think about how popular he would be today. If there was a guy who you were sure could heal every disease, I mean, you would line up, right? You'd be like, I don't, I don't know what I have, but I have something, you know? <laughs> like, could you help me out? <laughs> like, there are things that I might have, you know? Like, could you, could you give me one of those, like, 12-point inspections like they do at, a, at an oil change place? You know, like, like what you got? Like, give it to me. So, so, so Jesus is a full-blown celebrity. Luke, in Luke's account, it says they have been waiting for him all night long. Just waiting for him. Hey, I know he was gone, but, but he's going to come back. And I'll be first in line waiting for this guy. And in the midst, but in the midst of this crowd, there are two people who stand out. I believe their story is kind of a benediction to us. They're an interesting duo. They have no relationship with each other, but they're bought, brought together in this text. In this text, we highlight a man and a woman. One rich, one poor. One rejected, one respected, one honored, one ashamed. One leading the synagogue, other, the other excommunicated from the synagogue. One has a 12-year-old daughter who's dying. The other has a 12-year-old bleeding problem. And so the scene is set. And here we go. There's a large crowd. Jesus has just gotten out of the boat. He's on the other side. He can see the mob of people, 10,000 strong at least. And this is what it says. As he exits the boat, this is what happens in verse 22. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus, 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 we're just going to go with Jairus, came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. Do you see the accessibility of Jesus? If someone wanted to meet with Jesus, they could meet with Jesus. There are no intermediaries. In fact, Jesus rebukes people who stop people from coming to him. And so the synagogue leader comes to Jesus and he bows down before him. And this is a shock because a synagogue leader would have been kind of an official connected to, you know, the power structures of society. The religious establishment and the religious establishment was was uh, led by the scribes and the Pharisees. And if you know anything about the scribes and Pharisees, you know, they hate Jesus. They hate him. They actually plotted his death up to this point. And so this guy is a synagogue leader. You could kind of equate him to like an elder or like a deacon. He's at that level, a religious man, a devout man, selected by the members to represent uh, them before the leaders of the synagogue. Um, And those people despise Jesus, but this guy knows that Jesus can solve his greatest problem. And what's his problem? Verse 23 He pleaded, this is Jairus pleading, pleaded earnestly with Jesus, my little daughter is dying. Please come 
and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and lived. My little daughter is dying. Could there be anything that shows, that displays evil more than the mutilation and the hurting and the devastation and the destruction and the death of little children? Oh, I have a, I'm a dad of a little girl, and I, could, I, mean, I would do pretty much anything for her. And so this guy has thrown off all of that religious posturing and goes, I'm going to the man I know can solve my, my greatest problem. I have a suffering child at home. I have a suffering child at home tasting that bitterness, right? Tasting the bitterness of evil. He goes and he pleads. Can you imagine what that speech is like? All we get is that he pleads earnestly. But man, what would you say to Jesus? Jesus, I need some help, you know? I've heard the stories. I know who you are. Please, you know, I know I have all these tassels and this religious garment on, but I don't care about any of that. Would you just come to my house and touch her? Because I know if you do, she'll be well. Could you please save my daughter? Please, please. That's what that word begging earnestly means. It means repetitive. Please, 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 please. You can imagine him as Jesus is moving along. He's like crawling with him. Please, 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 please. He has the power. This guy, saw, this, this guy saw in Jesus a way out from his suffering. He was dependent, needing mercy. So he reached a point where he doesn't care anymore because his daughter is to the point of death. But, but here's the characteristic I really want you to see. He could go to Jesus. You know, Bill Gates uh, is helping with world hunger, I think, or something like that, Right? But you could not call him if you were, in fact, hungry. Like, if you were really hungry, you, you couldn't call the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, hey, I have no food this week. It doesn't work like that, right? The president is helping with economic problems or whatever. But if you were late on your mortgage, you couldn't give him a call and go, hey, could you, you know, send me 50 bucks? These people are inaccessible. Jesus is amazing because he knew that the real problems of evil needed to be solved at the personal level. Certainly he could solve systems, but he knew that real alleviation didn't come until it came face to face, person to person, eyes to eyes. And what does he say? Hey, I'm, I'm here. I am totally accessible. At any point, at any time, if you need a little Jesus, you can go get him. And really, that's true 2,000 years ago, and that's true today. You can lift your voice in prayer, and you don't, have, you don't have some, like, operator that's going, what do you need? Oh, that's not that important. Let me send you off. It's like, Lord, I need a parking spot. He's like, all right, I'm listening to you. <laughs> Jesus is directly accessible to every human being that lives. How grateful are you? That Jesus does not hide behind guards, that Jesus did not hide behind, you know, his mansion, but that he is truly Emmanuel, God with us. The characteristic you would not expect from a powerful man, he's accessible, and man, Jesus is certainly accessible. The second thing I see happens in verse 24, he's not just accessible, he's also available. We'll talk about his availability. Verse, verse 24, what does it say? This is crazy, right? He's pleading with him. Jesus is, is listening to him. And then it says, so Jesus went with him. I like to think of it this way. 
It wasn't that you had his phone number, it's also that he would pick up when you called. It's one thing to have someone's phone number, oh, I have a direct connection, but they never pick up. You're like, well, who cares? This, Jesus, if you need him, he would go with you, man. There's a mass of people, this is what it says, a, a large crowd followed and pressed around him. So of all the requests, Jesus listens to this Jairus man and goes, yeah, you know what? I'll, I'll go with you. I'll go with you. It wasn't going to be easy for him. The crowd was, was heavy. They were kind of a nuisance, pressed in. We learned uh, a couple of chapters ago that the crowds are so large that Jesus wasn't even able to eat. That Jesus needed to, to go in nighttime to get away from these groups of people. But again, Jesus is not just accessible, he's also available to this one man. You call, and he also, he picks up. By the way, how do you do the pickup thing? Do you do this? All the young people do this. I don't, I'm, I'm distracted. Um, anyway, I can't believe, can you imagine what that would be like, like, to, to finally have an outlet to the suffering you're facing? To know that, yeah, he said yes, and he's coming to solve my problem? I, I can't, I don't even have a category for that. I don't even have a, a category for that. I, I, and, and think about this, if, what are the demands of someone like Jesus like, how much is being asked of God in human form? The demands on a schedule must be cra crazy, right? The creator is walking with his people. His schedule must be super, 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 super busy. But he's like, you know what, I'll make time for this man. Oh, what an incredible thing. I, I think of it this way. Like, I, I, people will call me often and will, they will begin the conversation with saying, hey, I know you're very busy. But, and this week I've been reading, or these last couple of weeks I've been studying out this chapter, and every single time I cringe now. I'm like, I'm not busy. <laughs> I've been trying to say, I'm not busy, I'm available. Right? Like, like but that's Jesus. He's like, I'm not, I'm not busy, I'm available for you. This is God, this is the founder of the universe. And he goes, you know what, I'm not busy. I'm available for you at this exact moment. Mr. Rogers would say that the most important person he ever speaks to is the person he's speaking to then. That was Jesus. Hey, you're important because you're here and you're with me. For me, you know, I'm on a Zoom meeting and I'm watching a baseball game. You know, like, it's like, I'm not, I'm totally distracted. I don't have the ability to, like, go, yes, you are the most important, but, like, Man, powerful people, you would imagine, won't have time for individuals, but that's not Jesus. You know, I'm like trying to figure out whether Aaron Judge is going to hit 61 home runs while we're having lunch the other day. By the way, the Dolphins look like they're good for the first time in 30 years. So, I mean, just talk about sports. I, it's, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. So, yeah, anyway, but like, you get what I'm saying, like, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy, you're busy, I'm busy, we're busy, we're busy. Jesus is like, I'm busy, but I, I'm available. Moved with compassion for people. I love that he's moved with compassion. Mark Matthew chapter 14, he was moved with compassion. Mark chapter 1, moved with compassion. Mark chapter 8, moved with compassion for the crowds. Matthew chapter 9, moved with compassion for the crowds. Over and over again, we hear that, that, that sentence. Jesus is moved with compassion for individuals who are suffering. So much compassion in the hearts of God for the suffering. 
who have been destroyed by, by the evil that they have brought on themselves. Jesus goes, you know, I love you and I have compassion for you and I'm available to you. I'm available to you. The next thing I see is really interesting. The story goes, right, Jesus is moving through the crowds. The, the crowds are pressing in on him. Jairus is so happy, so happy. And then we see Jesus' interruptibility, interruptibility. I don't know if that's a word, but that's the word I'm going to use today, <laughs> interruptibility. Jesus could be interrupted. Jesus was so, wasn't so task-focused that he wasn't led by his Father or by the Spirit. Jairus, he's on his way to Jairus' house, and then it says this, a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She has a hemorrhage for 12 years. She has a bleeding problem, and she has had this bleeding problem for as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive. We later learn that she's 12 years old. For 12 years, she's been bleeding. I don't know how to delicately put this, but it's sort of a female bleeding problem. Before the invention of any kind of feminine um, uh, hygiene products, this would have not just been a, a source of embarrassment, but also just a, a, a sense of, of, of a constant idea of death or a loss of energy or of physical effects. Um, and on top of all that kind of physical thing, there's an Old Testament law concerning this type of bleeding. Leviticus chapter 3, verse, um, verse 8, and also in Leviticus chapter 15, um, I'm sorry, Leviticus 12, uh, verses 3 through 8, and Leviticus 15, verses 19 to 17, said that a woman who was bleeding in this way would have been unclean. She would have been unclean for seven days during her bleeding. Um, what's interesting is that this woman has been bleeding for 12 years. So she could never be clean. What does it mean to be unclean? Well, you couldn't worship in the synagogue. You couldn't come to church. You couldn't go to the temple. You would basically be an outcast. If she touched her husband, her husband would be unclean. If she touched her children, her children would be unclean. If she touched a stranger, the stranger would be unclean. If she touched a bowl and then a stranger touched the bowl, that stranger would be unclean. And so rather than dealing with any of that, people would just push these people to the margins. She was equivalent to a leper or something like that. She could never be clean. By the way, all these cleansing ritual things were designed by God to show you the effect of sin. And you can't miss the imagery. Re remember, sin is like this tacky thing, that, right? It could, everybody it touches, it just passes off its devastation to. It's like a grenade you launch in the middle of a, of a situation. It explodes and everybody is affected by it. And so sin is supposed to be, uh, rather, the unclean ceremonial stuff is supposed to be an example of that for people to go, oh, that's what sin does. And so what is she living with? She's living with an external consequence of her sin or of sin in general forever. It's horrible. It's horrible. And, and so anyway, it's a symbolic thing. The sin soils things, defiles things, corrupts things. And for her, we have to catch this, her bleeding was a constant, 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 constant reminder of the evils of sin in everyone's life. She saw sin firsthand. And so she just wants to get out of it. Verse 26, it says, She suffered a great deal 
under the care of many doctors. I thought that was an interesting thing. She suffered under the care of doctors. Luke will later say she was incurable. He would just put it flatly. Yeah, she's, I think Luke probably said that because Luke was a doctor. So, <laughs> so she's, she's uncurable. She, she, she suffered at the hands of many doctors. And what else? This kind of sounds like the American medical system. And spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. The prescription for a woman who had, who, who had this problem, according to the Talmud, was to carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen bag in the summer and carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a cotton bag in the winter. It's no wonder she didn't get better. It's not very helpful to carry the ashes of an ostrich bag, but that's all they had, right? So again, Luke would just write, she's, she's incurable. She was never going to get better. And she spent every dollar she had to try to get better. She had no hope of ever being back as a, a normal member of society. She had no hope of ever being clean. No hope. No hope. And so she violates the acceptable boundaries of her tradition and of the Old Testament. And she hears Jesus is in town. She goes, I'm going. I'm going. I'm going to be with him. I don't care about defiling all these people. I'm just going to go because I need to be with him. By the way, if you're, if you're like go, dealing with sin and you're like, I'm too bad of a person to come to church. I might, you know, defile your church. You probably will. So we're all defiling our church together. You know, like we all got problems. But Jesus is willing to accept anybody who is willing to come to him. Verse 27, man. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, hoping to avoid notice, but with a strong faith, she sneaks in. Maybe she has her face covered. Everyone would have known her in town. And all she thinks to herself is this, verse 28, if I just touch his clothes, clothes, I will be healed. You have that type of faith? If I could just get around him, I will be better. Again, there is no doubt here. There is no equivocation. I, 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 if I can just be next to him, I will be better. No lack of faith, right? If I could just touch the fringes of his cloak, I will be better. And then she touches them. And immediately her bleeding stops. Can you imagine what that would have felt like for her? She knows instantaneously. And she felt her body. And she was freed from her suffering. Time froze for this woman. The world stood still in that moment. The bleeding stopped. The, pro the physical problem stopped. But not just the physical problem stopped. Her suffering ends. Man, he's accessible. You could walk right up to him. He's available. He picks up your phone call. And the, second, and the third thing we see is that he is interruptible. He was in another journey, right? He was on another journey to help somebody else. And then the woman touches him, and he goes, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with you. I'll deal with you. I have time for you. I have time for you. And the last thing I see in this story is that he's personal. He's personal. There's a relentlessness about his personal connection to people. Verse 30, what does it say? At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. 
It's an amazing revolution, a revelation. And immediately she's healed. And immediately Jesus notices that he has healed somebody. I love to think about it this way, that God's power is personal. We think sometimes that God, we think of God sometimes as kind of like a cosmic force, right? Like we're talking into the ether. And maybe like he catches our words, you know, and he goes, uh, okay. And if we get, you know, if God responds, then, you know, the forces of nature have allowed us that to happen. But man, what I notice in this text is that it's something remarkably different. We can... There's an idea that God is impassable, which means he's not affected by humanity, and I, and I think that's very true. He is impassable. He's not affected by humanity like that. But, but he also is intimately involved in every expression of his grace. I'm going to say that again because I think it's important that we put that into our minds. Jesus is, and God is, intimately involved in every expression of his grace. Every expulsion of his divine power he knows he has used. I love that, right? Jesus knows that he has changed somebody's life the moment he changes somebody's life. He experiences the power flowing from him that frees this woman. God is not detached. He's not unfeeling. He's personally engaged in every act. Every time he answers a prayer, he is personally involved in that answered prayer. Every time. Every extension of God's grace, he knows who he gives it to. He is personally involved in our redemption. He's also personally involved in our judgment. Every expression of power, every expression of deliverance, every expression he feels, he knows, and he's fully involved in our lives. It's it's you and and me, the times where where he does something for us, he feels like he does it. I believe that he felt the power flow out of that woman when he saved her, but he also felt the power flow out of him when he saved you. (laughs) He feels the flow of power every time he sanctifies your life and he changes your life because he is not some external force. He is personal. He's personal. The middle of verse 30, it says this. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? This is a a funny statement to make. And the disciples, of course, you know, uh, true to fashion, go, you see the people around you? (laughs) His disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? He's in a crowd, right? He's just gotten off the boat. They've been waiting all night for him. Jairus is there. You know, we never had, this is the first line, by the way, that we hear from Jesus this whole time. Jesus is like, I'll go with this guy. He hasn't even said anything. He's following this guy, and there's a bunch of people, you know, and they're just crowding in, and they're pushing in on him. And then all of a sudden, he goes, someone touched me. <laughs> and Jesus goes, uh, the disciples go, um, yeah, uh, 10,000 people have touched you. <laughs> you, you. You see the people around you, you, you asked who touched you? Crammed in, touched. This is the first part of dialogue. And I don't think Jesus is asking this for information. He knows who's touched him. I think he's trying to draw this woman out. Because in that moment, if he can show her healing to everyone, then everyone will see her as no longer unclean, but now clean. 
She would have had to explain, right? Oh, um, uh, I'm clean now. And they would say, uh, I don't know if you're clean. And they would put her through a whole ritual to make sure that she was clean. But in that moment, if Jesus could elevate her, then everyone would say, oh, she is clean and she's accepted back into society. He's doing this for her. Verse 32, but Jesus kept looking around to see what, what, what he had done. I think of Jesus, I know this is not true, but I think of him as like six foot six, like <laughs> over the crowd, like, where is she? Smile on his face. Where is she? He's looking over the crowd, just looking for her. At that point, the woman knows she can't hide anymore. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, of course she knew what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. She's trembling with fear. Why is she afraid? She's not afraid because of the shame. She's afraid because she knows she's before the person who is God in the flesh. She's before deity. This is like when, in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah says, woe to me for I'm unclean. This is like uh, Ezekiel when he like, falls into a trance. He can't even be before deity. That's what this is like. This is not fear of some embarrassment. This is fear that she is before God Almighty. And she tells him the whole, the whole truth. Woe to me. I, I, don't, I don't know I don't know, I, 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 I don't know what happened to me, but you are who you say you are, and I fall at your feet, and I worship. And then here's the capstone verse. This is verse 34. Oh, I love this. He said to her, daughter. Daughter. There's only one time in the Bible this word is used in an individual manner, and it's this time right here. Daughter. You're my child. Daughter. Can you imagine... Jesus looking in your eyes and just saying, my son, my daughter. I mean, the woman, if she wasn't crying, she's crying now, right? Like, she's blubbering. Daughter. He says this. He goes beyond the physical, and he goes into her spiritual. He says, your, your faith, because you believed, it saved you or it healed you. That word there is sozo. It means to save. It also means to heal. But I think Jesus is saying both. You have been saved and you have been healed by your faith. And then he says, go in peace. This is not a light thing to say. Peace is only for those who have peace with God. Go in peace. And then he closes it with this line, be freed of your suffering. No more suffering for you. The God of the universe the God of the universe is so personal that he frees an individual of their suffering. The idea of sin and corruption is clear to her, and she found an answer to all of her suffering, both on earth and eternally, as she comes to faith in Jesus. You know, it's, it's true, I believe, that people can come to conviction of, of God when they're facing evil, but I also think it's true they can come to conviction of God when they're freed from suffering. She found a way out, right? She found a way out, and she falls at his feet. She's called daughter, and Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Recovery back to health for her, recovery back to society, recovery back to her family, recovery back to, to society and to the synagogue, recovery back. She had been a scourge, and now she's freed from all of that. Listen, aren't you glad that our Lord is accessible? That you can go to him at any point? 
Aren't you, doesn't it like give like peace to your soul that he's available? That when you talk to him, he listens to you? Doesn't it, doesn't it bring some kind of like uh, uh, relieve some weight that God doesn't have a better like mind, like purpose and he's like, I'm going to go this way and he can't be interrupted by your problems? Like God is like willing to go, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm sure I'm dealing with world hunger and there's a war in Ukraine, but also I would love to help you find a parking spot. You know, like, like it's like that he's totally with all, like he's amazing. And don't you love that you don't serve a God that's like far away, but that he's personal. We suffer, but in Christ we have found a, 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 a way to stop our suffering, whether it be in this life or in the life to come. And I love that about Jesus. But I want to just close out with something that I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we realize is the real issue. See, the real issue is not that we don't believe he's accept, accessible or available or interruptible or personal. The real issue is that we are inaccessible. <laughs> we are way too busy. We have decided that for God, we, you know, he is something we could put on the back burner. Oh, I'm so busy, God. I'll pray for you. You know, I'll pray with you five minutes a day. You know, like, that'll be it. I'll read my Bible whenever I can, the verse of the day. We are inaccessible. God is trying to reach out to us. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, right? God is reaching out to us, but we don't reach back out to him. We're on some other call that we have no interest in, in connecting with him. The problem is not that Jesus is accessible. It's that we are inaccessible. The problem is that we are unavailable. I have some other things I'm doing, God, and when I'm finished with those things, then I'll get to you. That's the problem with humanity. It's not our belief that God is somewhere else and not dealing with us. It's, uh, it's us. We are the problem. We are, if interruptible is not a word, uninterruptible, I have no idea if it's a word. We are uninterruptible. We have a plan. We have a dream. We have a family to create. We have a marriage that we want to set up for. We have a vision of our lives. And we're like, God, I don't want you to interrupt that vision. God is interruptible, but, but we are uninterruptible. And then I think, I think the truth is, really, is that we're totally impersonal. We don't want God to get into the nitty-gritty of our lives. We want to be mostly known. We don't want to be fully known by him. We don't want to be fully known by other people. We just, we don't, we don't want that. And so, sure, like, we worship a God that is amazing. But I would say the real issue, the real issue has been us all along. He's accessible, he's available, he's interruptible, he's personal, but how about, how about you? In the meantime, Jarius is standing there. Uh, I thought you were gonna save my daughter. <laughs> and we'll get to that story next week. <laughs> Father, we love you, we thank you. Um, we thank you that, Lord, you have Right now, I started a prayer, and you tell us that you tuned your ear to hear my prayer. Lord, what a, I mean, I'm nothing, God. Who are, are we that you are mindful of us, that we could pray in this assembly, in an assembly that's just this medium-sized church in the middle of nowhere, Lord, in, in, in the middle of history where we're really like we are nothing and yet 
you, the creator of the universe, the author of life, would take a time to turn and to listen to us. Lord, thank you for being so accessible and thank you for being so available to us. Father, thank you that there are times when, when Lord, you were willing to, to persuade or to be persuaded by people like Moses or people like Abraham, that you would listen to men God, it doesn't make much sense to us, but Lord, you are such a good God that you could even be sovereign by taking a detour to listen to men. Lord, and thank you that you're personal, that you're not far off, but, but really you are with us, God. And I, feel, I pray you, we, feel you, we feel your presence right here, right now. God, that, that you are amongst us, that you want to be close to us, that you want to help us, that you want to alleviate our suffering, that you know the best way to deal with the problems of evil is not to deal with systems, but to deal with individuals. God, and I just thank you so much for that, so much that you heal my heart, that you gave me a chance at life. Father, I pray that we can follow those characteristics that you have and we can be available to you that we can be accessible to you, that we can be interrupted by your plans in our lives, Lord, and that we can be willing to be personal with you. Father, I love you. I thank you for Jesus. I pray for this communion time as we take the bread and the juice that represents your body broken and your blood poured out for us. I pray that those of us who are believers today, that we can take it seriously, that we can eat the bread and drink the juice and think about this as a, um, something that's, that's a, a sacrament, Lord. Uh, that, that's something that is, is bigger than just a momentary moment of, of sticking bread in our mouth, but really is a time to remember the body broken and remember the blood poured out, that your son was willing to give it up, give everything for us so that we could have life. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.